According to a survey published in 2012 in the Atlantic, America is losing confidence in its traditional sources for values, including God. 69% of those surveyed said that American values have declined since I've graduated from high school. So that's like a long time ago. 69% say American values have declined. The following factors were listed as contributing to the weakening of values in America. 63% said that political corruption was a significant contributor. 61% said too much focus on material things and money. 57% said a celebrity-obsessed culture was a contributing factor. 55% said the use of drugs and alcohol. 53% said a lack of strong leaders and role models. 47% said apathy at work and a poor work ethic were contributing factors. Here's an interesting thing. 89% of those surveyed believe in God. Now catch this. 70% of those surveys said they believe with hard work, I can accomplish anything. Now, I think there's a theology problem there. Um, I would concur that this is the American way and this is the path to the American dream. But Jesus said... I am the way and the truth and the life. Instead of saying, with hard work, I can accomplish anything, the Bible says, for nothing is impossible with God. Um, The danger of the Christian is trying to live the Christian life without Christ, trying to live the Christian life in our own strength. It's one thing to say that we believe in God. You know, we can just, we could go around the room and have a survey. Do you believe in God? I'd say there's probably a fairly high percentage that you do. Maybe some are thinking it through and processing it. That's awesome. It's one thing to say that you believe in God. It's another thing to do what he says. It's one thing to say that you believe in Jesus. It's another thing to surrender your life to him totally and put everything into his hands. When it came to the first century, Jesus was looking for people of faith, a genuine faith. He was looking for people who believed what he said and were willing to follow him wherever he led. And we're going to look at this in Mark chapter 6 this morning. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13 this morning. And we see uh, Jesus' authority rejected uh, in verses 1 through 6. His authority rejected rejected. Verse 1 begins with a change in venue. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. Jesus left there. Jesus left where? Where where did we leave him? Jesus left where? Well, Jesus has been in Capernaum, city on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he went to his hometown. Where? Nazareth. So Jesus left Pernum went 20 miles southwest to his city of Nazareth. And let's see that map. There it is. Brought it back again. Starting to get used to it. So we go up to the top on the north. We see that little tiny body of water called the Sea of Galilee. On the northwest top is Capernaum. 20 miles southwest is Nazareth where Jesus grew up. He was born in Bethlehem. 
grew up with his family in Nazareth, though he's headed back home. He's been on a ministry trip, and now he returns. Um, And by the way, Jesus probably went home on several occasions back to Nazareth. Luke chapter 4 is one of those, and probably the first time he did. This is different than his trip back in Luke chapter 4. Verse 2, teaching at the synagogue. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. So remember, the synagogue is a place uh, where the Jews gather to worship. They, they go to the synagogue to pray. Uh, it's, it's sort of like um, the term we use for church. It's, it relates to uh, the Jewish religion and um, a place to pray. It was a place where they read the Old Testament scriptures because remember that New Testament scriptures hadn't been written. And not only that, the Jews haven't accepted them yet. Um, So the Old Testament scriptures were read there. And so Jesus was teaching from the Old Testament. Um, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach, and many who heard him were amazed. This is kind of a common response to being and hearing Jesus. To hear Jesus explain the text of the Old Testament. Uh, to have him talk about spiritual truth. And he had such insight and understanding they weren't used to. And um, he wasn't trying to impress them as some of the teachers had. He was trying to help them understand and to make it simple. And they were amazed at his teaching. And they asked, uh, verse 2, where did this man get these things? They asked, what's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Whether they had observed him on this occasion, whether they had heard about them, because the news about Jesus is just traveling like wildfire throughout uh, Galilee, the northern part of Israel. And uh, what is the source of Jesus' power, of his authority? And people were amazed. He was humble, he spoke clearly, he spoke with understanding. People, and probably a lot of people there had even traveled to other cities and they had seen him perform miracles. They had seen him cast out demons. They had seen people who were blind receive sight and people who were deaf receive hearing and the lame who were able to walk. And then in verse 3, we have a little, uh, his authority is questioned And we we have a a change that's settling in. Verse 3, isn't this the carpenter? This is the clearest reference we have to Jesus' vocation. This is his hometown. They know him. They've known him all of his life. And they're impressed by what they've just heard. But now they're processing. Who is he? Isn't this carpenter? I mean, that's not great, folks. He's just a lowlife like the rest of us. He's a working man. He's a commoner. He doesn't come from um, a really important family. He doesn't have an education. He's just like the rest of us here. And isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us, they know his whole family. 
There's nothing impressive about that family. They're just ordinary people. So who does this Jesus think he is? Because they're, they're beginning to question. You know, it seems like there's overwhelming evidence that maybe they should just bow down and worship. But that's not their take on this. Uh, it says in verse 3, and they took offense at him. Can you imagine that? He, he just taught. They were amazed. And he has now offended them. Um, now, something that doesn't grab our attention very quickly, but it wasn't normal to call anybody the son of a mother. You didn't say son of Mary. You always said son of the father. So if Joseph were her father, were his father, which he was not, he would say son of Joseph. But they said son of Mary. And that would have been derogatory in the first century to say that. It's beginning to question his reputation. It also suggests that perhaps there are rumors, and there's probably some good reason that there were rumors in Nazareth that Jesus was an illegitimate child. And Nazareth was a place that um, strong Roman presence, Roman soldiers' presence, and sometimes it wasn't uncommon for Jewish girls to become pregnant, maybe whether they chose to or not. And so there was a suggestion in this Jesus may be an illegitimate child because Joseph wasn't the father. And it's probably true that Joseph was not living at this time, Mary's husband. He's the father of all the other kids, but probably has already died. But we just don't know because there's no more mention of Joseph in the New Testament. It says they took offense at him. That's an interesting word because it's a word for scandal. They were scandalized by this thing that Jesus had said and done. Uh, the word is scandalon. And uh, so they're, they're really questioning. Why did they question Jesus' authority? Um, where did, and here's the question they're facing. Where does his supernatural abilities come from? This, the, the folks, they recognize. They don't doubt that this is supernatural. What is the source of... Of supernatural. They've got two choices. And there's already one flying around with authority. And that's from Mark chapter 3, verse 22, something we saw earlier a few weeks back. And you remember this after a miracle, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of the demons. He's driving out demons. What were they saying? They were saying, Jesus is driving out demons by the power of Satan. There's sort of an accusation here that Jesus' power, his ability to perform miracles, is coming from the satanic side, from the evil side. And they are offended by Jesus coming to them. And this is, this is where the Jewish nation begins to officially reject Jesus as their Messiah. Hard hearts. And remember uh, Jesus' parable of the sower, when the word is preached and um, Satan can remove the word from hard hearts. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22 and 23, the Apostle Paul 
says this. He said, the Jews demand signs and Greek look for wisdom. One of the things he's saying there in verse 22, the Jewish people by nature of their religion look for supernatural miracles, signs they were called. It was to attest to the the authentication of the message. Is the message true? And the messenger. Is the messenger really from God? That was the purpose of signs. That's what the Jews were looking for. Greeks look for wisdom. They don't like miracles. Greeks want rationale. They want to think. This is a Gentile approach, which is the Western approach of, of America. Verse 23, but we, but we, the Apostle Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. The word for stumbling block is scandal, scandalon. It's a scandal of grace. We sing about that. They tripped over this. They couldn't get over it. They couldn't get past of it. Jesus was the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, and they just tripped right over this. Verse 4, prophet without honor. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. This was a kind of proverb of the day in both Jewish and Greek circles. The idea is familiarity breeds contempt much like it can for us. Jesus is simply saying, it's easier to go to another town and proclaim the gospel than it is in your own town. It was easier for a prophet in the Old Testament to go to another community and speak for God than it was for him to speak for God in his own community because in his own community, he's just another one of the people who live there and everybody knows them and everybody knows the silly things about them and... uh, It's just hard to see somebody speaking for God that's just ordinary. They would dust off, kick the dust off their sandals. And it was a sign that they were uh, leaving behind this impure people. And it was a way sort of of them putting these people down. So Jesus has a plan for the Jewish people. Not for Gentiles, but it's for the Jewish people. He's going to offer them the kingdom of God, and then uh, if they're not interested, if they reject what you have to say, I want you to kick the dust off your feet when you leave as a sign to them that they are now accountable to God. And so that was the subtle message. So why did Jesus give these instructions, this simple, um, you know, a staff, uh, a pair of sandals, and guess what? You can't really take everything you need. You're going to have to depend on the people when you get there. Why these instructions? Matthew 6, 33. This is the words of Jesus, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now, this applies to us, to put God's kingdom first and his righteousness first, and he will supply our needs. But this is what Jesus was teaching the twelve. He wanted them to totally depend on him. Don't plan anything extra. Everything you need will be provided, but you got to trust me. Can you do that? He's saying, you got to trust me. Verses 12 and 13, um, expanding the kingdom. Verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent. 
They drove up many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. And this was the same message that Jesus gave. Repent, which means to turn to God or turn back to God. And to believe the good news, the kingdom of God is present. And it should, people should wake up and say, where is it? And there's Jesus proclaiming. Oh, they should get their attention. God is doing something new. Here's somebody speaking for God. Seems to line up with the Old Testament. We should pay attention. What should we do? We should get ready. This is the same ministry that Jesus had. Proclaim the good news, drive out demons, and heal sick people. Guess what? Now there are 12 people doing it. Now the ministry is multiplied. First, the kingdom of God appeared when Jesus began preaching. Now his disciples, who have been trained, have multiplied this times 12. In Isaiah 61, verse 2, an important passage that is quoted in Luke chapter 6, verse 4. And uh, it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Jesus quoted this in Luke chapter 4 earlier in his ministry. When Jesus quoted this, he was proclaiming publicly, I am the Messiah. He didn't say it. He read the scripture and said, Today it's fulfilled in your hearing, which had been a kind of a significant time. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom from the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. That's demonic possession. Next slide. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, something new and something different, and it's about grace. It's about God's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God, that judgment is coming, and to comfort all who mourn. That was Jesus' message. That's what he's been proclaiming. Now what? Now there are 12 guys doing the very same thing, and the, there's ministry expansion. Um, so a question for us is, how do we expand the kingdom of God today? How do we expand the kingdom of God today? Allow me to give a little bit of a context here. So we have Jesus introducing the kingdom of God. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he, he proclaims the kingdom of, is at hand. He, he says, repent and believe in the good news. And then he trains his disciples and he hands it off to them. And then Jesus would die on the cross, and he would pay the penalty for our sins. And it seemed for a little while like this whole thing was going to fail. But Jesus uh, was buried, and he was resurrected on the third day. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God. And in Acts chapter 2, as Jesus promised, he would send his Holy Spirit. He promised this on the night he was betrayed in John 14, 15, and 16. Peter got up in Jerusalem and preached the gospel, and 3,000 people were saved. And that day, the church got its start, and the Holy Spirit came to live inside of believers. And um, there's a new form called the church. Now it's the church's job to advance the kingdom of God and to tell people who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, the church isn't the last or the end of God's work on earth. Because one day, the church is going to be removed when Jesus comes back. But God's work is going to continue in a slightly different way. 
How are we going to advance the kingdom? Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is Jesus' instructions to us. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Verse 20 says that as we make disciples, as we share the good news, as people come to faith, they should be baptized. If the kingdom of God is going to advance, we, believers need to be obedient and get baptized as followers of Christ. And teaching them to obey everything. That's discipleship. That's instruction. And the goal is obedience. The goal isn't smarter sinners, okay? So that's the job of the church, to make disciples. Matthew 5, verse 14 through 16, helpful for us. This is how we're to live it out. You are the light of the world, he said to his followers, Jesus instructed. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and give, it gives light to everyone in the house. And verse 16, I think a lot of you know this well. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good w- deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. God's design for the church is that we as a church family, because we've placed our faith in Christ and because we have a relationship with Christ, that we serve and do good deeds. And when we do, it shines brightly in our world, in our community. And um, next slide. How do we... How do we expand the kingdom of God today? Good works. Okay? Matthew 5, verse 16. Letting our light shine. Good works lead to goodwill in our community. That's one of the things we're doing with Touch Twice. We want to have goodwill in our community. Why we serve. Goodwill leads to a platform for good news. People listen when they see goodwill when they understand our motives so good works leads to goodwill leads to good news so question what is the good news and I just want to take a couple minutes as we close our service to remind us about the good news sometimes we forget and there may be people here today who are not clear on this whole subject of what is the good news so to talk about the good news I want to first talk about What's the opposite of good news? And that's bad news. And the bad news is our problem. The Bible says, number one, we're all sinners. And this is why we need the good news. Uh, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners. Uh, God has a standard, and when we violate his standards... It's called sin. It just means we miss the mark. And uh, we're all in this, whether it's an attitude we have or whether it's something we do, we all, every one of us, everybody in this room, and everyone ever born is in this category, falls short of God's standards. Secondly, we must face the consequences for our sins. This is what the New Testament tells us. There are consequences. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin 
his death. Wages are what we earn. Wages are what we deserve. And the consequences we deserve, according to the Bible, for sin is death. Um, And in this case, in Romans 6.23, it's not just physical death, but it's uh, a spiritual death. It's an eternal spiritual death. The concept of death in the Bible is one of separation. So when a person dies physically, the physical part separates from the spiritual part. The spiritual part is eternal. The physical part goes to a grave and decays. There's a separation in physical death. There's also a separation in spiritual death. And in spiritual death, there's a separation from God for eternity. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. Jesus called that hell. But the good news is, that's why the good news is good, God has a solution. Number three, Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sins. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While, we're, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's because of God's love, and he demonstrated his love toward us. It's because he loves you that God sent his son. It's because he loved you that Christ died for you, for your sins. Um, We just saw in Romans 6.23 that all of us deserve that death, that death the consequence for our sin. Jesus took our death. Jesus was our substitute. Jesus took our punishment. We deserve the punishment of eternal death. But God the Father is satisfied with Jesus paying for our sin penalty. He's satisfied with Jesus' death for us. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. He was put to death in the body, the crucifixion, and he was made alive in the spirit, the resurrection. Christ suffered once for sins. Jesus doesn't have to, he, he does not have to die over and over again. Once was enough. His life totally satisfied the sin penalty because his life is infinitely valuable. The sin penalty has been paid for, and God is satisfied. And your sins can be forgiven. There's one requirement. Number four, we must trust Jesus Christ and his death on the cross to be saved uh, from eternal death. John 3.16, perhaps the best known verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Could you substitute your name in there? For God so loved you that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, that if you, for me it'd be, Jerry believes in him, Jerry will not perish, but have eternal life. Can you substitute your name? Jesus has substituted himself for you. Can you substitute your name for the whoever? That's making it personal. God wants to have a personal relationship with you. And the way you do that is you respond back to God in faith. Acts 16.31. 
It says, Paul and Silas came to the Philippian jailer, asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. They must, the house, the family needs to believe just like the jailer needed to believe, to believe in the Lord Jesus. To believe means to have faith, to trust, to rely on, and to count on. So here's the question. Many of you have already placed your faith in Christ. My question is, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, can you believe what Jesus has done for you? He died on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sins. He offers forgiveness to you. You can receive that forgiveness today. The offer is still good. You can be given the gift of eternal life. One requirement, you must believe. You must trust Jesus. And here's the way you can do it. We can do it just as we close our service by um, saying a prayer. And it's, it's, it's simple. I'm going to say it twice. The first time, I just want you to listen because I want you to think about the words. I don't want anybody to make a decision they don't understand. But if the words make sense, I'm going to ask you to pray it a second time. And you can do that privately, silently, in your own heart. The prayer goes like this. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Thank you for loving me and sending Jesus. Right now, I put my trust in Jesus Christ, your son. I believe that Jesus died for me. Thank you for saving me from my sins. Help me to be the person you want me to be. Do you want that prayer to be yours? And you can just make it personal privately, silently, from your own heart. So I'd like us all just to bow our heads together and pray. And again, if that prayer made sense to you, I'd like you just to pray along with me uh, this morning. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Thank you for loving me enough to send Jesus. Right now I put my trust in Jesus Christ, your son. I believe that Jesus died for me. Thank you for saving me from my sins. Help me to be the person you want me to be. If you prayed that prayer along with me, I'm going to ask you, would you mind just slipping up your hand? Everybody else just have their head bowed. If you prayed that prayer with me, just slip up your hand. Thank you. Who else? Thank you. Thank you. Who else? If you prayed with me, just slip up your hand. God, I just thank you this morning for those who have uh, indicated they've prayed to place their faith in Jesus Christ. I pray right now that they would sense that their sins are forgiven. I pray that they will sense your presence, that you have given them eternal life, that they have a new relationship with you. And I pray that you'll help them to become all that you want them to be. And Father, I thank you uh, for the scriptures. I thank you for Jesus' life and for the passage this morning. And just to remind us, the reminder for all of us to be people of faith and to trust you and to yield our lives to you. May we not be Christian atheists who call ourselves Christians but live as if Jesus doesn't matter. May we yield our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to him. And be willing to do whatever he says and to go wherever he wants. For Jesus' sake, I pray.